The following podcast is sponsored by SuperheroStuff.com. Sci-Fi For Me Radio presents Jason Hunt, Timothy Harvey. This is H2O. Welcome, everyone. Sci-Fi For Me Radio, this episode of H2O, our 110th episode. Jason Hunt here, along with Timothy Harvey. Because we can't be stopped. <laughs> not yet. <laughs> not until I decide to quit. <laughs> so... Oh, wait. No. No. That's not gonna no. <laughs> Um, this, uh, this, uh, first of all, apologies for the delay this week. Uh, our episode is coming out later than usual. Um, the main reason being I've been, a, I've been away. Uh, you've been working. I you've did, been, you've been. I counted it up the other day. I did 21 12 hour days on the MTV project. Yep. 21 12 hour days. It wears you down. And we were, we, we yeah. had, we had talked about, um, Recording this like because uh, we because originally the Thursday we 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 try to record these on Thursday nights. Mm-hmm. That's 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 consistency. That means they go out Friday. Everything is right with the world. Thursday night, Jason calls me. <laughs> and he's like, yeah. it's like I am. I don't know. Yeah. When. Well, what happens th- Thursday night was packing everything up for the trip to North Carolina. The, mm-hmm. crew, the crew has gone to North Carolina now for the next leg of production for this, after which they'll be in St. Louis and then they're back here in Kansas City. So I get to do some more 12-hour days then. Oh, yes. Um, but the Thursday night, it was packing all of their gear in the cargo van because the cargo van is driving to North Carolina while the crew flies. Sort of a money saver, maybe, mm-hmm. kind of, sort of. So... The original plan was to wrap at 9.15 Thursday night. And I didn't get out of there until uh, 11.30, I think. 11, 11.30. Mm-hmm. Because you've got it, – it's like playing a giant game of Tetris. You have all of these <laughs> black hard shell plastic pelican cases that have got all this stuff in you. You've got lenses, you got filters, you got cameras, and you got all this stuff, right? And it has to go in – you know, I'm just like, okay, well, this can go here, and this can go here, and then, oh, give me that one, and I'll put that here, and this, this. Right. Because I want to keep a clear field of vision for the guy driving the van to be able to see, you know, use his, his mirrors and see out the back. So it's it's got to go in a certain way, and it can't shift. I want to make sure that it doesn't move, because if he hits his brakes, I don't want to, you know, a stand or some sort of a box or something flying and hitting him in the head, right? So I've got right. all this stuff. And then not only on top of the equipment, you have the two coolers that have been driving around in the in the minivans. Right. And all the craft services, which is the food, the snacks and the water and the and the sodas and the drinks and all of that. So all of that's got to go on, too. <laughs> so yep. I was like, OK, just bring everything down and I'll figure it out. But they had to repack everything because the cameras haven't been in their cases for the last three weeks. Right. So they have to break down the cameras, you know, take take them all apart, put the lenses in their cases, put all the all the control rods and the mounts and the handles and the grips and whatever in their cases, put the camera bodies in their case. I mean, it's just so involved to get all of this stuff back where it's supposed to be because – over the last three weeks, it's just been run and gun. You just throw things in a box. You throw, mm-hmm. you know, all all of the batteries, no matter where they came from, out of which case they came from, all the charged batteries were in one case. 
And so now it's, you know, you got to separate everything out and sort it and pack it and whatever and when, where it's supposed to go because now it's got to go to North Carolina. And I'm sitting there going, right. man, I hope everything comes back. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope everything comes back. So that was Thursday night. And, and Tim's right. I, I called him and said, I have no idea what I'm going to get done. Um, so we had said, okay, well, let's record Friday night. Yeah. <laughs> and... Uh, Friday afternoon, Friday morning, I spent doing airport runs and, you know, taking the crew to the airport, returning all of the rental cars and vehicles and, and whatnot and getting everybody finalized and checked out at the hotel and whatnot. And then we recorded Salacious Crumbs. There's a new Salacious Crumbs coming this weekend. And then I just basically completely deflated after that. And uh, I had we had pizza night. James and I, you know, I haven't seen my kid in three weeks, hardly right. at all. So we spent a little time, uh, you know, just watching some TV, eating some pizza. And 9.30 rolled around, and I'm just dead on my feet. Yeah. And the room is spinning when I stand up, and I'm like, yeah, I think I'm tired. <laughs> I hit the wall. Yeah, well, yeah. It's <laughs> a lot. It's a, Those are long days to work. Yeah. Well, besides that, doing all of my other work right. on top of that, mm-hmm. because you know, there we said before, there's a couple of a couple of days. Uh, I guess maybe two weeks ago, I did 24 hour days. Right, and it does. You know, my runs age, you right into the ground. My age, anybody. Well, anybody's age, but let alone once we have become well, people know, of a certain age. When I was younger, I could do it easier. Yeah, but 21 days of it. No, no. I mean, no. It's I uh, even with even when I was. When I was double majoring as th- uh, in theater and in graphic design, by the way, kids at home don't ever do that. Don't. That's, yes, that's, no. that's that's called no sleep, way too much alcohol, and way too much coffee. Um, but even then, you know, I pull all nighters all the time, where I was building a set mm-hmm. or studying for setting lines or painting something right. or, or designing a project, and I'd get like two or three days where I would have no sleep at all, or I'd take cat naps. And literally in between classes, I'd be sleeping for like 15 minutes at a pop. Yeah, you do the Da Vinci method. Yeah. Yeah. And day four would be, oh, I think he's, I think he's broken. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure he's broke. What so. do you, what do you see on the wall? <laughs> yeah, I don't see anything on the ceiling. What are you talking about? <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was so, um, and let alone trying to do it now. And I already, I already do way too long of days as it is right. for but I also very much believe in the in the power of of the longer than a cat nap nap. Well, and and I read, and I can't remember where I read this. If you drink a cup of coffee about half an hour before you take a nap, mm-hmm. you know, a half hour, forty five minute nap, then it times out that the caffeine in the coffee hits your your system at the same time the dopamine is supposed to make you sleepy and take you into really? REM sleep. And so if you wake up 30 minutes or so mm-hmm. after that, then you wake up more alert. You know you, you know when you take that nap and you wake up and you're just groggy as all get out and you yeah, just sure. can't move. You feel like you're just wet and, and mm-hmm. soggy and, and you can't go anywhere, right, without it just feeling like you're just bleh. <laughs> Apparently, what that is is the dopamine and the stuff that the stuff that drops you into REM sleep. That's about the time it starts really kicking in, and you have the dopamine receptors in your brain. If you drink the coffee, the coffee, the caffeine 
gets into the dopamine receptors and blocks the dopamine from getting in there. So when you wake up, you're not groggy. Interesting. I will have to experiment with that. And I read it on the internet, so it, it must, must be, be true. true. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we saw some stuff on the internet this week that is is true. Yeah. And and I think I'm, uh, we're going to lead off with some very sad news, and I'm sure that we are not surprising anyone to have uh, to talk about losing Prince this week at 57. Yeah. That's that's and for somebody who, well, a lot of a lot of a lot of people passed away this week but yeah prince at 57 years old well he had been he'd been apparently had been having some health issues right but and and there we they did an autopsy yesterday uh and it but, but autopsies will take time i mean right. you do it properly you can't just have it's, it's not this isn't tv where you sit there and go and the autopsy shows no this is this stuff takes weeks you yeah. test test the real testing test takes time and i mean you can have preliminary findings sure but, yeah. yeah and um and for a lot of people, of course, he, he, he was well known for being someone who didn't drink, didn't smoke, um, uh, very much somebody who was, in many ways, just appeared to be the pinnacle of health for somebody of his age. I had heard that a few weeks ago, there was an emergency, he was on a plane and there was an emergency landing, he was having respiratory issues Well, they something. were, I was listening to that, listening to that, um... Uh, on NPR last night, they were interviewing one of the guys who was there, one of the reporters who was there when the, the police were making an announcement about the the nine one one call. They released the transcript for that and, right. and all this stuff. And they said that that what they actually don't know is who on the plane was the person having the distress, because it's uh, there was oh, no there was okay. nothing that actually there said was it was no identification. Right, Prince is having a problem. It's just he happened to be on yeah, that plane. So yeah, he happened to be on the plane. Now, when you look at what we've seen now, that would be the logical assumption, but we don't actually know. So right. we're, we're suspe- you know, that's probably the case, but we don't know. But for those of you who who maybe are younger and and uh, don't know why we're talking about Prince on a uh, <laughs> on a, 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 a genre, genre. yeah. Um, like well, there's a couple of reasons. First of all, um, Jason and I are both of a, of a certain age, and that would be in the the middle forties, where <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> where Prince's music really exploded when we were in high school. Mm-hmm. I mean, he just you know, um, and it just had a huge impact, and and he was a great showman, and and you know, just really you know, music that crossed genre, uh, you know, uh, genre boundaries and ethnic boundaries, and you know, any kind of boundary you had, everybody loved his music, whether you liked one song or liked all of his stuff. He had something for everybody, right? Um, and much like Bowie was sort of a chameleon, he would play these different characters, with, you know, visually. He was certainly, uh, and, um, but he also, for especially for the genre folks, um, he did the Batman, the first Batman soundtrack for the Tim Burton, Michael Keaton Batman. Right. And I remember when they, when they released the Batman soundtrack, it was on an album, it was on a vinyl, it was on vinyl. Mm-hmm. And they released the Batman soundtrack, and I remember the blowback because people were were looking at this saying, "Wait a minute, this is not the soundtrack. This is all a Prince's music. Where's right. the soundtrack?" And of course, that was that was you know they what they meant was where's the score? Where's right. the where's sure. the you know Danny Elfman's mm-hmm. music? And I think at that point, that may have been the beginning of separating out the score 
as an individual, you know, the use of the term between soundtrack and score of, of you know, when you release, the, you know, the music of a movie, you know, a lot, uh, a lot of them now you'll see, you know, the film score on mm -hmm. an album rather right. than the soundtrack because the soundtrack is, is a completely different thing. And actually, soundtrack is really not accurately used anyway because the soundtrack, if you want to get technical inside baseball, Mm -hmm. The soundtrack is that little stripe on the side of the film, <coughs> film, <coughs> film, <laughs> but that's where this term comes from. The soundtrack is a little track of, of uh, etched in information on the side of the film that has all of the sound. So, you know, the dialogue and the sound effects and the music and, and everything is on the soundtrack. Mm -hmm. on on the what they call answer prints. These are the release prints that go out to all the theaters. Right. Well, the soundtrack is not just the music. So it, for all of these years when we were talking about, you know, the the soundtrack for the movie, it's really not. It's the music from the movie and now you're being able to, you know, now you've separated out from the score and the and the music tracks. But that that was the first time I remember any kind of a discussion that separated out the score as its own thing. And I think Batman may have been the first one to release two albums because they released Prince's tracks first. And then there was a hue and cry for Elfman stuff, so then they released the, the film score as its own album. Right. And that album, that Prince album, is actually regarded as a Prince album in his own catalog. Mm -hmm. So, Because it's all his music. Yeah. Do you remember the... Do you remember he did a duet with Sheena Easton on that track? Oh, yeah. That 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 is... Really? Sheena Easton. I know. <laughs> it's it's a kind of an amazing soundtrack, um, and it really sort of changed that that movie that movie and that soundtrack in for different ways and different reasons really kind of shaped what we were considered the modern modern superhero film to be, mm. and um, it confused studios because right after that we got both we got you know the the the, the this, the knockoff of Batman, which couldn't quite get it right, and which is that sort of that we had this this explosion with Batman and Batman uh, Batman Returns, mm -hmm. and then it all just kind of tanked uh, for a little while, and then we sort of had the the it wouldn't really call them wilderness years because we kept getting superhero films, but they were just kind of like eh. yeah, Dark Man, yeah, Blade. Although, although I tell you what, Dark Man is still one of my favorites. I love Mystery well, Man. Well, Dark Man is is a is a Batman knockoff well, to, it, well, to some extent. He, well, he got did Dark Man because he uh, uh, Remy couldn't get the rights to the Shadow. Mm -hmm. Um so Cross the Shadow and and Batman which is like well, regression right there. The Batman is is influ have, very heavily influenced by the Shadow. Oh, of course. So, but it's um it's this weird thing where where the modern era of the superhero film really kind of started with Batman. With, mm -hmm. with that yep. Batman, but it also went into this weird kind of um, devolution right in there, and then we had the X Men films, right. which kind of redid it, and then X Men, Spider Man, and then um, in the where in there we'd have things like you know Superman Returns and and Blade and things like that, but we didn't you know the explosion that we have now, this the the wall of superhero flicks, yeah, um, certainly didn't exist. We didn't we didn't get that until relatively recent. And that that reminds me, um, we need to make a note on level eleven seven this week. Uh, on our next on our next episode of level eleven seven, we need to talk about the 
uh, X-Men and the Inhumans and the Fantastic Four. Right. So we'll just make a note. And, and, and I'm saying that mainly for the benefit of our listeners who haven't listened to Level 117 yet. That's our Marvel podcast. Right. Do a little cross-promoting there. Yeah. That's like I do. But yeah, you're right. I think I think the intersection between the superhero movie and pop culture uh, really happened with Batman as well. Because up until that point, with the action movies, the superhero movies, the space movies, you know, like Star Wars and Star Trek and all of those, mm -hmm. you had film scores. You had John Williams and you had uh, Jerry Goldsmith and, you know, you had the orchestral scores. And with Batman, you had Prince. Mm -hmm. And nowadays, it's no big deal. You're going to get James Horner and, and Quincy Jones or you're, you're, you're going to get that mix of oh, sure. your composer, your orchestral composer, and then you get the hip hop artist or whatever, you know, Kanye doing a couple of things. Mm -hmm. And there's this there's there's more of a collaboration. Now. Sure. Yeah. But back then it was you never heard of it before. before no, the, the only thing you got before then was um, uh, the. I mean, you'd use a sound, you'd use a song you know, in a track somewhere well, as a background like the, the, piece, or the or the opening song to a James Bond movie. I mean, you'd yeah. have you'd have a big name musician or artist sing the the opening track or the trailer or the or the credits yeah. music, but you didn't have somebody who had basically given you the soundtrack to the film throughout the film the way that the way that you got with Batman with uh, yeah. Batman. So um, another little thing we need to throw in here right now is the BBC just made an announcement. Oh, oh, breaking yeah. news. So, did he, did he, yeah. did he, did he, did he, uh, did he, Pearl Mackey uh, is the new companion. There is a trailer up, or a, a little teaser uh, thing, where the Pearl and the Doctor are being chased by the uh, Daleks. I have just posted that. Uh, I've just posted that on Twitter myself um, and tagged Sci-Fi for me in it. We'll, uh, we'll also post we'll a get link. We'll get up there. Uh, Pearl Mackey does not have a lot of credits. According to IMDb, uh, she was in a single episode of The Doctors, which is a British TV series, and the movie Svengali, um, where she has a apparently a small part, um, which is kind of cool, actually. Um, one of the things that Doctor Who has done very, very well over its time has taken actors and actresses who... Uh, not very well known. Not very well known, but <clears throat> who are very, very talented, and given them a platform to come to... Uh, the attention of the audience, and she is um, a quite lovely young lady. Is as sh shocking there. Um, you know, let's let's be. You know, they've and always her character's name is Bill. Bell. 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 I, I was um, looking at that wrong. She is um, looks like, and that's spelled B E L L. So maybe a last name. Um, could be yes. Or, um, any anything anything to indicate that she might be not from Earth. Um, nothing yet. She lo her, the clothing looks very Earth like. Um, she's a black actress. Um, there will be people disappointed that she's not an alien if she's not an alien. Well, and you know, uh, here's the thing. It's like it's like when <laughs> it is such a iconic cultural thing with Doctor Who that we all want to see the thing we want to see on it, mm -hmm. right? So no matter who you cast as the Doctor, no matter how talented they are, people right. are, some people are not going to be happy. No matter who you cast as the companion, some people are not going to be happy. And there has been, and I completely get this, right? So there have been people calling since the show came back, give us something more than a 20th century Earth girl, right? Um, and so, so the 18th century or the 19th century Clara 
people were like, oh, ooh, 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 and we like her. And then, oh yeah, I, know, I, I liked her better than I liked modern, modern. Well, Kato. sure, and and that a lot of people felt that way. She was spunkier. She, yeah, just I, yeah, I would agree. And part of that comes out of that that kind of that kind of character in that culture in that time, right? Mm-hmm. They stand out more. They have they have, um, but it's also this. Uh, um, we saw so many different types of character because we had aliens and we had people from different time periods in the original series. Right. And so a lot of people just want them back because they want them back. Um, the clip up on, on the BBC, the BBC America site is like three minutes, two minutes long. Hmm. So it's a fairly sizable amount of things. So I have the sound off here. It is playing in front of me and I'm like, I really want to turn the sound on, but we're recording <laughs> a podcast. So, um, curses, curses. Uh, but so, I'm not surprised people are going to, people might be, but I also don't know how old she, where she, where she falls in the timeline. I mean, she's, um, I don't know, you know, is she 20th century? Is, is she 21st century? Is yeah. she, you know, she's, she's wearing a shirt that I could sit there and pull right out of the eighties. I mean, you know, that would actually be, you know, somebody who is 30 years. Yeah. I don't know. There, there's stuff they could do with it. But anyway, um, Peter Capaldi looks awesome. Um, as he does his, uh, his hair has changed yet again. <laughs> you, you know, I still there is there is a movement afoot, um, especially after, especially after Sean Pertwee and Peter Capaldi did that photo together. Yeah, the internet almost broke, and they went, "Why can't we have this? Why can't we have a third? You know, or have or have Sean play thirteen? Oh well, no. To see, and Sean has said he does not want to play his father because he feels like it wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be right to play his dad. Um, and I, even I, though it would be, I, I get that yeah, and I, I respect that, that. It, but, but it would be perfect. Oh yeah. And having him be the next doctor after Capaldi would be, that would be pretty would, cool. Well, and it would fit in line with what the curator says about revisiting old faces. Well, not to mention the fact that it's also, um, you would know that you'd actually have a very different tone with the character mm-hmm. because, uh, uh, Pertwee has done a really, really good job, especially for those of you who haven't followed his genre career. He does a lot of genre work, a lot of horror. Um, uh, and, of course, he's on he's on Gotham as the most psychotic Alfred ever known to man. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, let's just kill them all. You know, it's just like, oh, wait yeah, a minute. Sure. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, but at the same time, you'd almost have, you could actually have someone who's maybe a closer to Eccleson's earthier kind of, uh, man of the street doctor, you think with Pertwee and yeah. be and, and be a lot of fun. I mean, because it'd be something about sort of almost the bruiser doctor, someone who's right, who's right. Old, the pugilist. Yeah. Um, well, and you could bring in, you could bra- bring back the Venusian Aikido. Yeah, I mean, yeah. so and so I don't know. It, it, I, I, I and I like Sean. I like watching him act. Yeah. He's fun to um, just a fun actor to to watch perform, and he's a neat guy when you listen to him talk. So I would be okay with that. That yeah, would right be fun, that. but yeah. I, you know, looking, looking, just watching this little trailer here, I'm, I'm excited. She looks like a, a, she looks like somebody who is lots of running. Oh yes, goodness, it's it's corridors and Daleks in the in this mm. little teaser here, um, of course. And um, they have generally done a pretty good job of casting companions, so I'm excited for it. I'm looking forward to the new season. I'm, How much do you think the new guy, the new showrunner, had influence in casting her? I would imagine it, it was a discussion that was had because. Because um, he's the one that's going to end up having to work with her. Well, sure, but I mean, Moffat, you know, um, Moffat 
wants he loves the show forever however you feel about about Stephen Moffat whether you like him or you don't or you know as any showrunner gets all the grief in the world mm-hmm. um, he loves the show and he's gonna he you know he he's going to be concerned about where it's going after he's gone he won't and he'll want to love it as a viewer. Yeah. Right? right, so I'm sure there was some input. I'm sure there was some discussion. Um, I'm sure that this season's going to be a lot of it, uh, back and forth between him and and the folks going forward, just because they want the transition to be smooth. They're not going to want there to be. I think the biggest concern that a lot of people have is whether or not Capaldi's going to leave at the end of this next season or stay oh, on another not. one. I hope he stays on. I do too. I would love to see. I'd love to see him be around for quite a while. He's for. I think for a lot of the older fans who remember the original series, he's such a lovely throwback in a positive way. And I use mm-hmm. throwback yeah. as, as it's often a, a negative, but it's very much a positive in this case. To that earlier kind of, that, that first run kind of doctor. Mm-hmm. And if you watch his performance, he has taken every doctor before him and worked them in there somewhere. Yeah. And he does it very naturally. He's a fine, fine actor. I think that American audiences really didn't grasp how big he is in the UK and how his powerful his career has been in the UK in terms of just going from strength to strength to strength. Mm-hmm. I've been a fan of his since Local Hero way, 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 way back. And, and if you have not seen Local Hero, go watch that movie. Not while you're listening to the podcast. After the podcast, right, yeah, go watch the movie. Yeah. Uh, Burt Lancaster uh, and Peter Capaldi's first role set in a Scottish town. It's really, it's a, it's a sweet, sweet, funny movie. Um, and really has flown over under the radar. Uh, Mark Knopfler from Dire Straits did the soundtrack. Oh, right, right, yeah. right. So, uh, was but, that after Princess Bride? Because Princess Bride was his first soundtrack, wasn't it? Score, film, music? Um, I want to say probably, yeah. I think so. Yeah. It was, but it wasn't, it came out about the same time as Princess Bride. I mean, there was, they were relatively right. close together. Yeah, because I remember, uh, I remember on the commentary track, um, uh, um, who directed the movie? <sighs> Reiner, right? Yeah, Rob, Rob Reiner, Reiner. Mm-hmm. saying that the only the only thing that would get Knopfler to do the music was if they threw a Spinal Tap a ball cap on the set. <laughs> that was one of his requirements: is that you got to you got to put a Spinal Tap uh, baseball cap somewhere in the set uh, of the you know in the bedroom, the kids' bedroom. You right, go through yeah. there. There's a there's a baseball cap in 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 the background. Right. And it's one of the Spinal Tap things, and that was one of Knopfler's uh, conditions for doing the music to the Princess Bride. <clears throat> it's on the it's on the sound it's on the on the commentary track. Yeah, I love that movie. Uh, well, you know, it's it's hard not to love the Princess Bride, but yeah. So it's it's well, and Robin Wright's going to be in Blade Runner too. I know, which just got its date moved up three months to now October. Mm-hmm. October twenty seventeen, October twenty eighteen. When's it coming out? October twenty seventeen. Twenty seventeen. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, I'm excited about that. It's a it's a it's a it's a day for exciting things. Um, I I, I did uh, I did also want to say there's uh, um, one sad other sad thing we need to talk about uh, real briefly is um, Patton Oswalt's wife passed away. Yeah. Suddenly, like. In, in her, her sleep. In her sleep. Um, and she was, goodness, 40, 45, 45, 46, 47. So relatively yeah. young. They have a, a seven-year-old daughter. Mm. Um, and, of course, obviously we are, uh, we wish nothing but uh, the deepest sympathies to 
Patton and his family. Of course, Patton Oswald, aside from being a really fantastic comedian, is also uh, has done Agents of Shield. He's a big genre fan. Uh, he's done some really fun uh, discussions about Star Wars and and fandom. He's he's a he's a genre fan. Yeah, he he loves it and. Well, that big that big uh, monologue he did for uh, Parks and Recreation is still going right. on the internet. Oh, of know, course, people, people still love that. Of course, but I'm I'm sure the you know, he he like Prince's family is is in a lot of pain right now, and and we we certainly want to uh, extend our deepest sympathies and and uh, condolences to to him for his loss of his wife Michelle. Uh, she was a she was a true crime writer. Hmm. And uh, she tended to focus on your smaller cases, not the ones that got all the press, but the ones that were kind of flew under the radar. Right. And she would write about them on her website and hadn't done it for several months, but she'd been doing, keeping stuff, notif- notifications up on Twitter and things like that until the last few days. So hmm. um, really sad, obviously, to lose anyone that, that people care about, but also, again, someone who was way too young, just like Prince was. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> On that note, yeah. why don't we take a break? We're going to refill our coffee mugs. Yes. When we come back. Watch this teaser. You watch the teaser. And when yeah. we come back, we are going to talk about another thing that's been blowing up the internet. Yes. And not in a good way. Right. Well, depending on how you look at it. Sure. Um, the casting of Scarlett Johansson as Motoko in that and Ghost a, in the Shell. That and a follow-up about... Uh, Axanar. Axanar. Because the follow-up continues. This is Sci-Fi For Me Radio. Where can you get the latest cool superhero and sci-fi merchandise? SuperheroStuff.com From t-shirts to keychains to cookie jars and everything in between. Superhero Stuff has added more buyers to the staff, which means more stuff, which means more for you to choose from. And don't forget the Hero Box, the must-have superhero mystery box. A $70 value, just $49. Visit SuperheroStuff.com today and gear up with your favorites. SuperheroStuff.com where heroes shop. Marvel's Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is back, and so is our discussion of each and every episode as we gather down in the super-secret underground bunker at World Headquarters. Join us for recaps, analysis, and discussion, with a few digressions along the way, and you do have security clearance to listen. Level 117 every week, part of Sci-Fi For Me Radio, only on SciFiForMe.com, your portal to the science fiction multiverse. I'm meteorologist Brian Busby. If you're traveling to a convention this weekend, especially if you're a cosplayer, it helps to know what the weather's going to be like. Rain and fur don't mix very well, now do they? That's why every week, Sci-Fi For Me gives you the weather forecast for every city hosting a convention. Those we have on our list, anyway. And that's worldwide, not just in the United States. It's part of our commitment to bring you content you won't find anywhere else. Just click on the Conventions tab over at SciFiForMe.com, your portal to the science fiction multiverse. Whoa, where'd you get that shirt? Bought it at the convention last week. It's an atomic cotton design. Atomic cotton? Yep, they got t-shirt designs from sci-fi, horror, cult films. All the shirts were really unique and fun. I had to get one. I gotta wait for another convention, though. Nope. AtomicCotton.com. I ordered a shirt. Shipping was super fast. Atomic Cotton, where Erica and Zach combine their passion for art and film to create wearable art. All original, made with a love for the genre. Coming to a convention near you very soon. Or find them on the web at AtomicCotton.com. Atomic Cotton. Shirts and art for fans by fans. 
Star Wars fans, McKenna Riley here, inviting you to join me for the latest news, rumor, and innuendo from a galaxy far, far away. Salacious crumbs only on Sci-Fi for Me TV. Back on H2O, Jason Hunt here along with Timothy Harvey. Hello. Switching gears just a little bit, some follow-up to an earlier story that we ran, uh, that we've discussed in, in detail in, in a couple of different places. We've talked about it here on H2O. And we've also talked about it at length over on the Echo Chamber with uh, Michael Hinman at 1701 News. Right. The Axonar lawsuit. Uh, for those of you who have been living under a rock and don't pay any attention to anything Star Trek related, CBS and Paramount. And uh, I hear that the driving force behind this lawsuit is Paramount, not CBS. Filed suit, copyright infringement lawsuit against Axonar Productions. This is Alec Peters, who did a Kickstarter campaign, raised over a million dollars to do a fan film called Star Trek Axonar, which was going to be the story of Captain Garth of Izar and the Battle of Axonar from the early days of Starfleet. Right. And the, the copyright infringement suit basically says... They're using all of this copyrighted material from Star Trek, and they're not allowed to. Right. And what we've managed to speculate in all of the back and forth and looking at the paperwork and the documentation and, and, the, and the interviews and the analysis of the project, the speculation is that uh, this fan film would have gone the route of all other fan films, basically... Uh, the corporation that owns the intellectual property would have would have just basically ignored it like they do everything else, except for the fact that Alec Peters made no bones about what he was doing with the money. Right. Paying himself $38,000, mm-hmm. outfitting a brand new studio facility mm-hmm. for something mm-hmm. called Ares Productions. Right. And I saw in a comment thread somewhere, and I haven't found any substantiation for this, so it's complete alleged you know, allegation at this point. It's, it's alleged. Somebody made the comment that Peters had said somewhere that he had a number of projects he could never get off the ground because he didn't have the funding for it. He didn't have the backing. Nobody would do it. So he used Star Trek to get the money so he could go do his own projects, which setting up Ares Productions would seem to support that notion – Right. That he was basically building his own for-profit operation on the back of Star Trek, mm-hmm. which is a big no-no. And that was the big trigger for the lawsuit for Paramount and CBS to come out from and say, you can't do that. Right. Because all the other fan productions, they do raise money, but the money gets spent on the production itself. And you know it's all donation. They're all nonprofits. They don't get any – you know, they're, they're not – they're not making money hand over fist with any of these things. Well, and, and most of, most of the ones that that have not been that are well known that have not been shut down or or even really discussed in this larger picture, most of that money comes from inside. Yeah, and I mean, they, and they don't and they don't they don't pay their people. Right. They don't pay the actors. They don't pay the staff or anything like that. It's all it all goes to expenses for the production, sure. Build, building mm-hmm. sets, uh, creating costumes, props, and all of that. Mm-hmm. And you might get something where, you know, George Takei comes in. Maybe they have to pay him some. Oh, know, yeah. But, him or but, but, you know, but it's a lot of that. for the main cast. But they're also not paying them, like, you know, regular right. rates. They're, right. You know, these, these folks are coming in and doing it because they love it. And we also get an indication there that money was part of this thing because Tony Todd, 
who was playing, I think, a Starfleet admiral mm-hmm. in the Axanar project. Right. Um, he's in the prelude to Axanar teaser, mm-hmm. but uh, he has since left the project rather, rather uh, obviously, uh, as far as posting on Twitter, saying that it was a money thing. They were, they were not going to be able to pay his day rate to be in the full pr- production. Mm, sure. Okay, fine. So he's out. Uh, Gary Graham, I haven't seen anything from him. Uh, I mean, he's done the generic supportive of the project type thing because he's in it, mm-hmm. you know, playing Ambassador Saval. But the the overall fallout from this, because the discussion then kind of broadened out to what does this mean for all the other fan films out there? And we're finding out. Uh, 1701 News reporting this week that uh, the sequel to Star Trek Horizon. Mm-hmm. Now, Star Trek Horizon came out. It went. It it was released. It's fine. It hasn't been pulled, as far as I know. No, it's still as, out there. And Star Trek Horizon was supposed to be a one shot. Mm-hmm. And um, Tommy Craft had enough support and people saying we like this story. That he decided, okay, we'll we'll do a Kickstarter f- campaign for a sequel to right. Star Trek Horizon. It was going to be called Star Trek Federation Rising, mm-hmm. and he got a he got a note from oh. CBS this, this week. Pretty polite note. A very polite note because the Kickstarter campaign had not started yet. It was right. supposed to start next week, and the CBS people, the lawyers or whoever in, in, engaged to communicate about this stuff. Basically, got in touch with Tommy Craft and they said, um, "Might want to rethink that before you do anything with it." Basically, putting him on notice. Mm-hmm. Um, and really, they didn't have to. No, they didn't. They didn't have to do that. They didn't have to sit there and say, "Don't do it yet." Um, but I, I think that, especially in terms of the Star Trek fan films. We're going to see a lot more of that. You you have the existing projects, things like Phase 2 and Continues, which have been going on long enough that CBS has allowed them to produce long enough before Axanar started that I don't think those are going to be affected yet. But new projects, in the wake of the lawsuit, if CBS allows any of them to move forward... I think it would undermine their case against Axanar. I think, I think there, that, that's certainly a possibility. I think the trigger really is where is the money coming from? I'm starting to think that the trigger is because this is the stuff you can find. Okay, this is the stuff you can you can find while it's happening. You can find it on Kickstarter or Indiegogo right. or whatever. All you have to do is go search Star Trek, right. you know, whatever, and. I think once you start building something that is a profit-making machine. Um, but there's nothing to indicate the, the Horizon people are for profit. They're not for but look profit. At, but, well, but look at, look at your dollar amounts. I think the dollar, amount, the dollar amounts are going to be your, your, your trigger because there's... Um, yeah, but Kraft was only looking for $250,000. Okay. The, not a million. Yeah, I know, but the operative word there is only 250000 That's feature budget. 
That's a that's a small that's a small feature budget for for an independent film. That's, well, Horizon uh, Horizon Craft shot for less than fifty thousand. Sure, sure. But I think once you once you're getting into these in these these dollar amounts that are you know independent film budgets, um, and yes, two hundred fifty thousand dollars for making a film is not very much money. No, for an indie film it for is. An, for an indie film it is. Yeah. And so I think once you're getting into this, the trigger is you know. Is them going okay? Not all of this money is going to go into production. Somebody's going to get paid, and as soon as somebody gets gets paid, then you know we are going to step in and say you can't do that. If it's a fan production, if it's a small scale thing, I just really, I if, if they're self funding, I am going to be really surprised if there's a smackdown on on the. The, the smaller filmmakers who are going to t- be telling these stories and doing you know a ten minute thing or a twenty minute thing or spending it all out of their own pocket, yeah. I think once it hits, once it goes into to the public funding your project, once you are getting quote unquote investors, mm-hmm. that's I think that's going to be that's the trigger. Well, and Kraft told Seventeen O One News that the Axonar lawsuit does play a factor in all of this. Oh, sure. Because he said. And this is a quote. It was conveyed that the reason CBS was reaching out to me was due to the legal trouble stemming from the Axonar case. Again, CBS did not have to reach out personally. The message I received felt more like they were giving me a heads up before we got too involved in another project mm-hmm. rather than a group of angry executives swinging a hammer. So, at you know, Kraft at least here seems to indicate that it was all friendly and above board and it was a, hey, oh, by the way, you don't want to do this yet. Rather than how dare you do this? Don't do this, John. You know, there's nothing there. We will burn you to the ground. But it, I, you, you could have a point about the dollar amount and and the whole Kickstarter thing. But the the continues guys and the Phase Two guys. Well, Star Trek continues apparently is having some funding issues themselves. But all of them use. Uh, these funding platforms, these crowdfunding platforms. Yeah, but they're not going in, and they're not going after these these huge sums of money. And they're they've also got an established record. I think that that you're not going to necessarily be as much of a target. Yeah. If you have come in and been doing this stuff for years and years and years, and and everyone know you know you've got records of where that money is going. Right. You know, I think that if they were to trip up and basically start producing this stuff and and going, oh, we're going to use this and we're going to fund our own projects. What's been interesting to me about this whole thing is the fan reaction and the calls. <laughs> I mean, because, of course, we've said this before. The Internet is where the loudest people are the ones you hear from and see from, and they are not necessarily representative of humanity in general, right. let alone fandom in general. But I am just constantly stunned in the boycott CBS, boycott Paramount. Oh, I know, I know. And it's like, okay, hold on, guys. Yes, as fans, we love this content. We love Star Wars and Star Trek and Doctor Who and Batman and Superman and all these things. We, we, they are culturally part of us. Mm-hmm. We don't own them. And we don't have a right, right to make our own stories about them. Right. There, this is, there is this thing called copyright law. This, there's this thing called um, creator-owned content. This is a thing, you know, these are, whether you like it or not, and you don't have to like it. The, the fact of the matter is, is that these are things that are owned by CBS and Paramount, and they get to make the decisions on what happens with their stuff. It's their toys. Um, and if they let us play with them at all, we should, you know, cool. We get to play with their stuff at all. Um, you know, they're not going to crack down. You know, we, we, we talked a little bit about the, the cheerleading 
uniform uh, lawsuit that's that's has a potential fallout for for cosplay. You know, the idea that these folks are going to go after someone dressed as as Batman or Sailor Moon or or you know a Final Fantasy character at a convention is ludicrous because it's just there's the the financial investment in cr- in cracking down on all this stuff would just be hilariously prohibitive. Yeah. So I'm not worried about that. But if you get into the point where you're basically using somebody else's material, somebody else's stuff, mm-hmm. to make a story that you get make money on, that's not how it works. Yeah, that's I, that's called illegal. In other words, fraud. The other, yeah, and, and theft. Yeah, theft of it's theft of theft of property. So if I go, you know, and, and to break it down very very clearly, I love Doctor Who. Okay, we just talked about the about the new teaser thing, which we walked over watched over the break, guys. Mm-hmm. Really a lot of fun. You got to find it anyway. If I sit there and go, I'm going to write a Doctor Who story, okay? That's called fan fiction. Right. If the BBC pays me for it, I become a Doctor Who writer. <laughs> yeah. And life is made of happiness and unicorns. But um, if I sit there and go, hey, I'm going to make my own Doctor Who TV show. Well, even if you even if you have your fan fiction and if you try to sell it online, right. mm-hmm. yeah. at that point, it becomes a copyright. Well... Technically, it's already a copyright violation because you're doing something with characters you don't own. Right. Um, but, you know, this has been a thing since the early days of fanzines. You know, there's always been fan fiction. There's always been stories that have circulated around. Sure. But with the advent of the Internet. When everybody can see it everywhere. It's available to so many other people rather than, uh, you know, I'm going to run it off my mimeograph machine and mail it to thirty people in Culver City or something, you know, something right. like or, that. Or I'm going to, or I'm going to be at a, a convention and I'm going to ask you for ten cents or yeah. you know, a dollar for the magazine. Yeah, and that just covers your cost of, of right. supplies. I mean, that's, and, and that's the kind of stuff so. that these people just looked at, and and you know, it's not worth the time. It's not right. worth the the, the law. It's not worth the lawyer's hourly rate. To, well, and every now and again, you'd get something like, um, oh, what was it? Uh, when Bantam was was publishing Star Trek, mm-hmm. uh, when they when they first started publishing original stories rather than the rather than the novelizations of the episodes. Oh sure, right. They started they they did Star Trek Star Trek New Voyages and Star mm-hmm. Trek New Voyages 2. Right. which was a collection of fan-written stories mm-hmm. set in the Star Trek universe. One of those uh memorably was uh Mind Sifter, mm-hmm. which uh Star Trek Phase 2 adapted as an episode. Right. Um, and it's it's pretty well done. Uh, it, it's it, there's a couple of things in there that I've got quibbles about, but it's you know they're amateur performers. Mm-hmm. You know they're sure. not they're not hugely experienced people. But um, but fan fiction has always been out there. Uh, a lot of it has been slash fiction, but a, a lot of it has been fan. What and and, and <laughs> you know some of the people that have written fan fiction have gone on to become professionally paid writers in that universe. Of course, or, yeah. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. Anne Crispin got her start. Or Vonda McIntyre. Vonda McIntyre. Uh, Greg Cox. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, Greg Cox is Greg Cox is kind of a weird uh, a weird example because he doesn't write very much. Well, up until recently, he didn't write any original stuff at all. All of his stuff was tie-in fiction, or in, you know, novelizations or adaptations of something. He didn't. Right. He didn't do a whole lot. He's he's done a lot of Star Trek books, but he's never done anything that's a Greg Cox original story, original story universe. Oh, sure, right. He's been thinking about it. He's been talking about it. I asked him about it the other day. I was like, "Are are you ever going to write something 
original that's not tie-in fiction because tie-in fiction is a weird beast. Yeah. It doesn't get recognized by the Hugos, right? Um, because it's it's redheaded stepchild, basically. I mean, oh, sure. the tie-in fiction has its own award, uh, and people have been campaigning for the Hugos to recognize tie-in fiction for a number of years now. I don't know that it's ever going to do it because it's not true proper literature. Well, it'd be, I think uh, I don't I don't even I don't even think you need to go with the with the the. Well, that's the main reason why it hasn't been done because it's your your stories are based on. TV or movie property. It's it, 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 the tie-in. Well, the tie-in yeah, but, fiction but, element of that. The tie-in element sure, is what. Yeah, but I don't think it's. I don't think it's a. I don't think it's a a a. You know, not as sure good enough. No, yeah, it is. No, because yeah, the thing is, is you no. Know, uh, okay. Thank you for the expectation of certainty because you don't it's, have. It's not literary enough, well, no, and that, but, that's but, where okay, the divide okay, has uh, been. Yeah, yeah, blah know? blah blah. No, I, I don't. I don't think that's necessarily the case because it's not original material. It's an adaptation of somebody else's work. No, 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 because it's not – but it is – see, the thing but is it's not an adaptation. An adaptation is, to me, I take take the Iron Man movie Mm -hmm. and I write the novel based on the screenplay of the movie. That's an adaptation. Mm -hmm. An original work in that universe is still something like The Rise and Fall of Continuity and Sea. That's still that's an original Star Trek story. It's not based on an episode. It's not based on a movie. I it's think, still in that okay, universe. But I think but if the we, fact that it's a tie-in to a but I think that if TV we show. if we had something where we, I, I think see, but the thing is, that most of as much as I love the adaptations, see, that's what I've been told is why the Hugos look down their noses at it from several different people. It's not tie-in fiction because it's 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 TV. And TV's not literary, and you can't be literary with TV stuff. And that's well, why okay, the tie—that's okay, why the Hugos don't on, consider on, the tie. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's not me. That's other people oh, telling. I, I know, but but that actually is perfectly logical, whether you agree with it or not, because we are currently currently is the operative word living in what they're calling you know a golden age of television because of all the stuff we've got right mm-hmm. right but we were also living for a good chunk of the 20th century and the early part of the 21st century in a cultural desert when it came to genre programming there wasn't enough right so looking down your nose at it versus there just wasn't any worthwhile uh, so, you know you had the bright spot of star trek and the bright spot of twilight zone and then a few things on cable but do you have has there been enough good genre television to compete against each other at the Hugos? No, 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 no. That's you know, no, 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 Jeez. <laughs> because it hasn't been about if you're looking at you know, the, it has it's been adapted it's been material that has been developed by authors to continue stuff in, in when these shows haven't existed and things right. like that yep. a lot of it is really really good <coughs> but very little of it is the kind of stuff that stands out and we know some really fantastic Star Trek authors. Mm-hmm. And there yep. have been some fantastic Star Trek books. I'm just using Star Trek. There have been Star Wars books and Doctor Who books and all these things. Yeah. But very few of them over this time have been the kind of groundbreaking storytelling 
because they're built in a certain formula. I mean, there's just no way around the fact. Sure. And as much as I could sit there and point to Star Trek books that I love, pretty much anything by Diane Duane, for example. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and the fact that Paramount didn't like and CBS didn't like immediately decide that this is what the Romulans are. are. <laughs> right. Uh, this is how it should be. Or yeah. the Final Reflection by John Ford. Oh yeah. Well, and I think I think Final Reflection did actually influence a lot of what we got from the Klingons from Next Generation forward. I think there's a little bit, but not enough. No. So I think you know, but those are the kind of things that I can look at that and go, God, I love that book. But I don't think we are. We never got there. How many? How many Star Trek books can you sit there and hold up against Star Trek novel? You know, Star Trek novels. You sit there and hold up against Heinlein or Clark, no. or I mean, I'm just, and of course, Heinlein and Clark are big dogs, and and so. But I think I think whether it's they're looking down the nose at it's the fact that basically these are to some degree they're formula novels. You can't get. I mean, if you you have you have some really fine, you have some. No, 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 no. They, maybe, yeah, I know. Maybe, but the, okay. Maybe. All right. All right. But, so, oh, no, they're formula novels. As much but as. See, but see, but Kirk, Spock, and McCoy go right, on adventure. But again, I'll go back to that's not what I've been told from people on the inside who well, know what's sure, what's but, what but, with but, the Hugos. But it's, but it doesn't necessarily mean they're looking down the nose of it. Even that's if, what I've been told. Well, even if even if people are telling you that, it, in terms of just practicality. But you also have to remember but, too, and, and and my my other point that I was trying to make earlier was the Hugos do recognize TV shows, you know, short form narrative TV, and they do recognize sure, film, sure. But they don't recognize tie-in fiction. Well, because the other thing is, is that if you are publishing something, if you are say, you know, a Star Trek novel, how many Star Trek novels come out every year? I think there are one a, one a month right now. Okay, so now you have glutted the market with one type of story from one from one. Well, that's not going to say that all of them are worthy of Hugo. Well, of I never not. said that. Well, of course not. But if you have that stuff over and over and over again, you, the first the first you, con Greg Cox's first con book, uh -huh. I would have nominated for Hugo. Okay, well there you go. Yesterday's Sun, I would have nominated for Hugo. Okay, well then get on the Hugo. Get on the nominations committees and 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 make your or become a member of the Hugo thing and, and yeah. Vote. But the thing, but is there's, there's no category for tie-in fiction, so it wouldn't count. Well, then put it you in as a regular. Then put it in as regular novel. They wouldn't recognize it. Well, they, it, it wouldn't be eligible. Enough enough people did. They would. It wouldn't be eligible. Enough people did. They would. Now that would require a rules change, which takes two years to do it. Well, guess what? Then you make a rules change. But the thing is, is that well, it's what happens. I mean, that's right. how no, if that's, no, if that's I, the rules. I'm, that's how you do I, the rules. And I'm not arguing that point. I'm just saying that there should be a category for tie-in fiction. People have been arguing that for years, and it still hasn't happened yet. Well, but uh, how old is the Hugo's? All this stuff grinds slowly. Oh, I know. You know, it's always going to grind slowly. But I think, I think that I, I, I'm, I'm. All awards have a certain amount of looking down at anything that is, is involves a change, mm -hmm. and I'm with varying degrees of annoyance with the whole. You know, you know anything anything that isn't the way that the fans want immediately is you know wrong and and the the whole the whole blowback on on CBS and and Paramount for this whole thing is kind of an example of it yeah because to be perfectly honest it's you know yes the fans and and you know a lot of people are arguing that the fan the fans kept the franchise alive for all these years and we're owed things no actually you're not mm -hmm. <clears throat> it'd be nice if we were owed things I've been a yeah. fan of I've been a fan of Star Trek since I was a very small child. I would like a pony, and a spaceship. <laughs> well, I mean, speaking course, of blowback, yeah. yeah, oh yeah, yeah, we we got the we got that other thing that that happened on the internet. Yes, Ghost in the Shell. Um, 
I don't know where to start with this because the reactions, hmm. I mean. It's all over the place. So, so everybody is, is, well, I say everybody. The internet in America, the mm -hmm. Americans, where social justice is a thing, and, and we have a victim class. And well, all and of see, that. I don't think social justice is a bad thing. And I never said it was, well, but saying. sometimes it can be a little bit overdone. I'm, I'm depending on one. They are anything can be overdone anyway. People are offended on behalf of another group. I'll put it that way. And sometimes that is justifiable. The whitewashing the, of of Ghost in the Shell, the the calling out. How dare you cast Scarlett Johansson in the lead of Ghost in the Shell? She's going to be playing. Major Motoko Kusanagi, mm -hmm. who is uh, uh, an, an operative uh, of this organization, this Japanese organization, mm -hmm. uh, set in Japan, um, where she's basically, uh, and, and I don't think it, I don't think very many people realize the basics of the story. Right. The idea here, ghost in the shell. The ghost in the shell. The ghost is Motoko. Mm -hmm. The shell is a cyborg body. Right. Um, the 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 core of the of the idea of the story here is that in Japan, and this is back. You have to remember, back in the eighties, Japan, Japan was the thing. Right. Everything was made in Japan. Mm -hmm. You know, all our electronics, all our gizmos and gadgets and whatnot was all made in Japan. And Japan was going to be the technological leader of the world. Well, and they were they were going to be and the at the time they were, and and their companies were going to expand and. Take over the world. Essentially, yeah, you look you know, at Blade Runner. Blade Runner everything exactly. was everything was going to be owned by Sony or Mitsubishi, right? Right. And so, th from that viewpoint, you have this Japanese manga anime that is very, very, very heavy in the tech, mm -hmm. and the idea that this person has has essentially replaced her body with a cyborg organism, mm -hmm. and not the same one all the time. Comes to, come to find out. You know, people have pointed out in comment threads and discussion threads, she doesn't stay in the same shell. Right. And it's a shell. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the anime, she doesn't really look all that Japanese. Right. But, but that's also a certain trend in, in Japanese anime, yeah, which they is... Do, they, they do they that do. a lot. Yeah. Sure. They make, they make their characters not look not Japanese very much. Right. So the blowback has been, how dare you cast a white woman as a Japanese who's really a robot? Mm-hmm. And can, can look at like anything. Right. The publisher... Of the manga. Mm -hmm. um, uh, let's see here. Um, a new interview with The Hollywood Reporter. Sam Yoshiba, he's the director of the International Business Division at Kodanasha, the company that publishes the manga. He says, looking at her career so far, I think Scarlett Johansson is well cast. She has the cyberpunk feel. And we never imagined it would be a Japanese actress in the first place. This is a chance for a Japanese property to be seen around the world. Mm -hmm. And this is the people who, now, granted, it's not the creator of the story. It's the publisher. Right. And, they're, and the publisher's job is to make money. Right. And they're sitting there going, well, it's a Hollywood film. Of course they're going to cast a star. Mm -hmm. We never figured it otherwise. But I find it interesting that around the world, and especially in Japan, nobody cares. Well, that's not entirely true. I've seen I've seen some posts where there's people who are like, you know, they're not fans of Scarlett Johansson. Um, well, yeah, sure. No, I and, mean, th well, but yeah, but the, it, but the whitewashing thing is not a thing as much as it is here. But at the same time, you and I have been very, very clear that the last thing we want to see 
is a white cast Akira. Right. Because that would be that would be a really but, bad example of whitewashing. But the story of Akira yeah, um, is so heavily tied sure. to Hiroshima and the nuclear thing, yes. like Godzilla. Yes. I don't think Ghost in the Shell is in that same well, it, it, category. It, it isn't necessarily, but I think it, it does feed into the larger the larger concern that people have that if you are if you are telling stories and guess what? The US isn't the US isn't guilty of this alone. All right. US, sure. The US film market isn't um the uh what the heck was it? The the thing with the giant monsters that come over the walls and eat people. Attack of the Titans. Attack of the Titan, 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 Titan something. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um they got some blowback because the characters in the comic aren't all Japanese, but they're all played by Japanese actors. Yeah. And they were like, Well, what are you doing? These characters were German. You can't have them be it's like, Well, we've got Japanese actors here, what are you gonna do? Yeah. So it's not like it's not Confined. Well, like everybody in Star Wars being British, okay, white. It's, it's not confined to the U.S. Right. You know, but uh, here we're we're in the middle of this point where we're in in entertainment where if you are not white, you're sitting there going, "Hey, guess what? I'm actually a really good actor. Can I get cast?" Um, and so and so when you do something that is based on a material in another country, mm-hmm. and and certainly we also have a track record of doing really terrible adaptations of foreign material. Yeah. Uh, some of it's good. But there's a lot of bad stuff. And so there's this thing where it's like, well, you got a story set in Japan. Why don't you cast some Japanese, if nothing else, some Japanese-American actors? We have some. And it's part of a larger thing where, you know, we're, we're asking these questions is why is, you know, why does it this or this have to be so dominated by white actors or producers or whatever, male guys, whatever. There's a lot of different reasons for people to be asking these questions. But it doesn't have, no, it's not the same as Akira. I think Akira really is, Akira is the, is the gold standard for why are you doing this? Yeah, because it 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 you can't tell Akira properly without recognizing the cultural origins of Akira. You just can't right. do it. I mean, America doesn't have the cultural reference for it. Man in a High Castle, okay, works because we all you know as culturally we remember World War II in a certain way, right? And if we had been, you know, we had Pearl Harbor, you know, Pearl Harbor has, was, you know, the idea that the Japanese would attack from the West and the, the, the Nazis would attack from the East and split the country that, that makes a certain kind of sense culturally right. for us. Yep. Whereas Akira, of course, is about the atomic bomb and it's the only country in the, in, in the world that ever could sit there and go, Hey, guess what? We have actual personal experience for having it dropped on our people. Um, and so you get Godzilla and you get Akira. This not not so much. I think it's an understandable reaction, but we've also only seen one photo from the set. I'm right. waiting for more photos from the set. The now, however, that <laughs> said, the news that there were tests run, digital tests run. Yeah, the CGI to, stuff to turn some of these white actors more Asian looking. Although I hear that it wasn't that it didn't involve Scarlet, it was other right. other members of the right. cast. Right. In fact, I'd heard as much. I'd heard different things. But I've heard as much as it was a background character to right. you know. But the fact that it was run at all, that is, that should have one of those things where you look at them and go. I mean, it's the the the, the person, the first person who mentioned it, the the second person in the room just out there went. Let's not. Let's just not. Okay. Let me throw this speculation out. 
since we're talking about cyborgs. Sure. And cyborgs may involve, and, and a lot of the stuff in Ghost of the Shell, you, you're looking at nanotechnology, you're looking mm -hmm. at, at adaptive technology. What if, and, and you know, as you have, have said in a number of different places, context is everything. Oh, yeah. Okay. We're getting the fact that there are CGI tests. We're getting that information out of context from why oh, those sure. tests were being mm -hmm. made. It's just as possible, I don't know how likely it is, but it's just as possible that we're looking at the CGI tests to see how the cyborgs could change from one to another. I mean, it could very well be that there's a story reason for this it, kind of thing to happen. It is possible. But we haven't had that addressed. Nobody has said why those tests were made right. within the context of the production. And that's, I think, probably a disservice. That's something that, that is a PR mistake. Oh, yeah. If you're Paramount and you're going to come out and say, well, yes, we actually did do some tests some, to see if we can make them look Asian. But here's why. You gotta, right. If you leave that part out, then there's a completely different discussion being made. Oh, yeah. And you're actually asking for, especially in this time when people are legitimately asking, mm -hmm. you know, why did we not have more... Asian actors in TV movies. Why do we not have more black actors in, in you know, the Academy Awards and right. all these things to sit there and go, okay, you realize you're stepping into a minefield if you don't just simply say, this is why we did it. Yeah. Right. So the more we get, now, if we actually get a film where Scarlett Johansson is on screen for 30% of the time, or to be perfectly honest, because this happens in Hollywood, she's on screen for 10% of the time. And the rest of the time, we have different actors, different shells, different shells. I mean, it's... or what if she's what if she motion? What if she does motion capture. Yeah, and I mean, what there's... if her shell can morph? Mm -hmm. I and mean, there's a lot of different things that we don't know yet. Yeah, but it is again, it's if you're if you're a Paramount and you know the culture that we're we're experiencing right now, where people are asking these questions, mm -hmm. and they and in in some cases they're legitimate questions. You should probably sit there and go, let's not get ourselves in any more trouble than we need to be yeah. by already sitting there and adapting a material with, we're, from all accounts, primarily a Western cast. Mm -hmm. um, and I think there's one Japanese actor in the main cast. And that, you know, that already is like drawing attention to yourself going, well, hang on. But is, I'd have to go back and look, the, the, the cast of characters in Ghost in the Shell, it's a mixed bag anyway, right? I mean, they're not all Japanese. Well, no, are but they? Uh, I don't. I don't think so. It's been years. I, I, I have it's read. Been a long time. I have read it, but I've, it's been yeah. years. Um, but I think it's also that the Japanese, Japanese manga, and and certainly some of their anime as well, um, has a very Western. Uh, char characters tend to look a lot more blonde and mm -hmm. blue-eyed. And that's a, that's another cultural thing. Right. It's a visual aesthetic that's that you find in a lot of it. Right. And it's um there's a and it's somewhat the way that somewhat the way the Japanese look at race. This is this would be a much much bigger discussion. But um it's something some some of that factors in, right? And and to some degree, blonde hair is an exotic thing. I mean, there's a, a lot of different ways you could look at this, yeah. right? But the, there's some interesting stuff that figures into, you know, Nazis show up a lot in Japanese uh, anime and manga 
because you know their footprint in and and sometimes in really really offensive ways the Nazis show up, which is phrases you don't get to say very often. The Nazis show up and you're offended for not the obvious reasons, right? So it's again, it's cultural stuff. It's it, if you're a fan of anime and manga, you you know what you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you're not, this is like a, be a much much bigger discussion to have. But so it's a weird kind of thing. It's like coming back to Attack on Titan. That's the title. That's it. Yeah. Um, the idea that you know the entire cast was Japanese actors. Well, okay, it was a Japanese studio making a Japanese film with Japanese actors, right? Yeah, and that goes back to my comment about Star Wars because the original Star Wars was shot in London, right, with a handful of American actors, and you've got British actors. Sure, but most, it all most of them are white. But it also established a trend. Yeah, it's a through line that people that at the time worked, but as we've changed culturally and we've looked and as entertainment has grown and the stu- and and how we look at entertainment has grown, mm-hmm. it changes it. And the audiences again, we've we talked about this before. When you're the audience, you want to see yourself back from the screen. You want to yeah. see people who are like you, and um, and now we they well these folks have a platform to sit there and go, but. They don't look like me. I can't relate to that character, and it's my money. Yeah. You want my? You want the studio wants my money? That you know, be kind of nice if I was to still sit there and go, I want to grow up to be that superhero or that <laughs> or that cowboy or that astronaut or that scientist or that musician. You know, that's that's what you want out of entertainment anyway. You know, so. I don't know it's an interesting thing. It's, we, we, we again one photograph. We have yep. one photograph. Yeah, and... we'll find out more as we go. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. All right. If you have a comment or a question or an idea or a thought or, or a suggestion, any any opinion that you would like to share with us, the email address h2o at sci-fi.com, or you can leave a comment on our social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest, Google Plus, YouTube, Tumblr, and of course you can leave a comment on our main site, which is sci-fi.com. Yes. Uh, some things brewing there. I'm not going to uh, reveal yet some stuff that we've got uh, under the radar that's in development. Uh, also, things. go ahead and check out HorrorForMe.com, our sister site, where yeah. uh, where we're talking about the horror genre a little bit over there. And, uh, of course, all of our other podcasts and shows, New Salacious Crumbs coming out this week. That's the Star Wars news. It's over on our on our YouTube channel, Sci-Fi For Me TV. And that's going to do it for us with this late edition of uh, of H2O. We'll be back next week on our regular scheduled time, hopefully. That's the plan. That's the plan. All right. Uh, we're going to go get more coffee and maybe continue this discussion offline. Uh, you guys have a safe weekend, and we will be back next week. This has been a presentation of Sci-Fi for Me Radio. Copyright 2016 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media. This is Sci-Fi for Me Radio. 